Okay, guys, stay there. In uh, chapter 33, we're journeying through uh, the book of Genesis together uh, week on week. That's where we're up to. Uh, As Adam said, I've been on holidays, which is a wonderful privilege. And uh, one of the things I like to do on holidays is listen to some good stories on podcasts. We, as a family, uh, binged a a long-form story in the car over a number of long drives. And uh, just a couple of days ago, I was listening to a really compelling story uh, about a middle-aged man and his estranged father. Uh, They hadn't seen or heard from each other for decades. Uh, They hadn't um, talked or shared anything of a relationship. But this middle-aged man wanted a piece of historical memorabilia uh, from his father. And so through an intermediary, he reached out. Uh, As he communicated through an intermediary, neither of them wanted to extend that contact, neither of them wanted to reconcile, neither of them wanted to find out much about what was going on in the life of their father or their son. But it was through an acquaintance of the father that the piece of historical memorabilia and information was provided that this person, who didn't really know the father and son, went to great effort to kind of create for them a rickety bridge that gave them the possibility of connecting once again after many decades of being apart. And a rickety bridge that neither of them wanted to walk across. A rickety bridge that neither of them wanted to use in order to be reconciled or even to associate or communicate with one another. The question I had was why? Why would this acquaintance, who didn't have much skin in the game in terms of this relationship, why did she care? Why did she go to such effort, and it was a considerable amount of effort, to try to help them reconcile? Well, it came out in the story that she was a palliative care nurse And in the palliative care space that she worked in, she said almost every person, almost every person coming close to death expresses sorrow and pain and sadness about some kind of broken relationship that causes them grief or sadness or distress that pain gets intensified and that desire for relationship gets uh, clarified the closer that they draw to death. And she saw in this father and son a broken relationship that she knows they'll both come to regret, having not walked across the rickety bridge of reconciliation that she sought to create for them. I found it a, a stark reminder that we are deeply relational beings as people. That we long for, we crave, we're made for relationship with God and with one another, which is why we feel the pain so acutely when those relationships are broken or interrupted, taken away through death, robbed from us, 
through sinful behaviour that we bring into the relationship or someone else brings into a relationship with us. We are deeply relational beings. That is foundational to our human nature as being made in the image of God and being, uh, it's foundational to the Bible's grand themes of what it means to be human. But going along with that, the, the, the fact that we are relational creatures is the Bible's grand theme of reconciliation. Reconciliation is such an important theme of human relationship and the story of salvation in the Bible because we are made for relationship. And because of our sinfulness, because of our failure to love God and to love one another properly, we need reconciliation. Because relationships get broken, they get strained, they get stressed because of our failure because of our sin, because of our selfishness. And so the Bible has this, this purple thread that runs all the way through, that the God of relationship who made us to know him and to love him and to enjoy him forever and to, to be in relationship with other people, he is the reconciling God of relationship, who wants to clear away all the debris of that sin and and, and death has created in our world and in our lives in order that we might be brought back to him and reconnected to one another in meaningful and real ways. The Bible makes clear that in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us, but dealing with our sin at the cross where Jesus dies in our place in order that that permanent bridge of reconciliation between us and God and us and other people might be walked across and enjoyed. And here in Genesis chapter 33, we get this great picture of reconciliation. And I want us to feel the weight of it tonight because we've been following the story of Jacob. We know that Jacob is a sinful wretch. We know he's a deceiver. We know he's a grasper. That he, can, he brought the destruction. He brought the disconnection. He brought the, the need for reconciliation into his own life because he grasped at the blessing of God. He deceived his brother and his father. He deceived his father-in-law. For decades we've been following Jacob as his life has, has kind of unfolded before us to see time and time again he continues to fail because of his grasping at the blessing of God instead of entrusting himself to the God who made promises to him. But that God by his grace continues to form Jacob for his glory, for his purposes God continues to mark out Jacob as the child of promise, the one who would turn into the nation of Israel, that family nation through whom God, God's reconciling work in the world would continue. We've been watching God form Jacob for his glory, changing his character, impacting his life, softening his heart time and time and time again. And where we left off last week in chapter 32, we see Jacob finally take the new name of Israel, even as God has uh, humbled him and given him a new crippling 
giving him a limp to walk with in order that God might teach him to lean not on his own understanding and not on his own resources, but to lean on the God of promise, the God of all faithfulness. And so as we see Jacob fearfully coming to be reunited with his brother Esau, he does business with God, praying that God would spare him, praying that God would provide for him. Have a look at where we left off last week in chapter 32, verse 10, where Jacob prays to the Lord. He says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid. He will come and attack me and also the mother's with their children. As Jacob knows that he is going to come across his older brother Esau, he is fearful. The last time we heard from Esau in close proximity to Jacob, Esau had said, I'm going to kill him. It's understandable that Jacob's fearful. It's understandable that Jacob is praying to God desperately that he might be saved from the murderous intent of his brother. The last time Esau and Jacob were together some decades before was when Jacob deceived his brother and stole the birthright, who stole the blessing from their father. The lentil stew episode is where these brothers were last together. But here we are some decades later and we know that God has done a lot in the life of Jacob. And it's interesting that Jacob needs to do business with God before he can do the reconciling business with his brother. That those two things need to go together. But it's a a prophetic picture, I think, that Jacob is limping towards his big brother in anticipation of their meeting. We see in verse 4 that Esau does something that Jacob cannot do. He runs. He runs to his brother even as Jacob limps towards Esau. And it's interesting as we kind of anticipate this meeting of these two estranged brothers... As Jacob graciously limps, having wrestled with God, having been formed and shaped by the chisel of God through suffering, in order that he might be prepared for this moment of reconciliation as he meets back with his brother and re-enters the land of promise. It's interesting to think, isn't it? It's another picture that the Bible constantly gives us that God's power is made perfect in weakness. The consistent tool that God uses to make people depend upon Him and to chisel them for for His purposes and His glory is suffering. The Bible's picture that when I am weak, then I am strong because weakness requires dependence. 
when you're feeling self-sufficient, when you're feeling strong, you think you can take on the world and you have all the resources in yourself that you need for life and for godliness. But when you feel self-sufficient, you then don't feel the need for God's grace, do you? You don't need His kindness, you don't need His strength, you don't need His provision, you've got everything you need in yourself. Whereas weakness tends to embrace grace because weakness comes from a posture of need, a, a posture of dependence, a recognition that I can't stand on my own two feet, that I can't have all the resources for life and godliness in and of myself, that I need God and His grace and His empowering work. This is how... Uh, J.I. Packer writes it in one of his books. He says, God uses chronic pain and weakness along with other afflictions as his chisel for sculpting our lives. Felt weakness deepens dependence on Christ for strength each day. The weaker we feel, the harder we lean on Christ. The harder we lean, the stronger we grow spiritually even while our bodies waste away. Jacob is graciously limping. And I wonder if we can take a bit of a lesson from him, having watched his life over these decades, having seen time and time again, God kind of wears him down and causes him to lean on him more and more and to depend upon his grace to come back from his self-sufficiency and self-reliance time and time again, often through suffering, and as Jacob limps towards his brother, having done business with God and needing to do the reconciling business with his older brother, that God, through suffering and weakness, has shaped Jacob for that moment. And so the challenge, I wonder, is are we willing to embrace weakness as the posture of dependence that causes us to lean on God's grace? Are we willing to embrace suffering as the chisel that God might use to sculpt our lives for His purposes? And that the Christian life won't be one of ease and simplicity. But over the course of decades, persevering faithfulness, even through suffering, knowing that that is how God works for our good and for his glory. Jacob's limp, 20 years in the making, places him in a position to do the reconciling work with his brother that needs to happen. And as they approach, things go better than he expected. Do you ever have that experience where you're going to a meeting or an event or something and you're kind of catastrophizing it in your head and you think, this is going to be awful? This is going to be a disaster and you're kind of working through scenarios and escape strategies and kind of, you almost don't go because in your mind it's already a disaster 
and then in the car on the way home, it's like, well, that went well. It's a bit like that with Jacob and Esau. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, for I'm afraid he'll come and attack me. Verse 1, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with 400 men. But what happens? That was better than expected. Verse 4, Esau ran to meet Jacob. He didn't bring his 400 men. He ran on his own to meet Jacob and he embraced him and he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. It's amazing that before they've even said anything, their actions have spoken so loudly. That Esau runs to his brother Jacob and embraces him, throws his arms around his neck and kisses him with the affectionate embrace of a reconciling brother and they weep. But just prior to to Esau running up to Jacob, how did Jacob approach his brother Esau? Remember God's promise, the older will serve the younger, Esau will serve Jacob, Jacob will be the child of promise, the one who inherits the blessing. Verse 3, but Jacob himself went on ahead, he bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother, he places himself in the position of service. Throughout the chapter, he calls Esau, Lord, my Lord, my Lord. He humbles himself before his big brother, the big brother that he deceived, the one that God said would serve him. Jacob humbles himself and bows down to him in humility, in service, throwing himself on Esau's mercy as it was that they might be reconciled as brothers. I think as Bible readers, it's easy to see that Jesus possibly picked up some of this language when he tells the parable of the prodigal son, the lost sons, in Luke 15. The picture of running and embracing and kissing and weeping in reconciling embrace... A few years ago, I was reading the Bible with someone who was inquiring after the Christian faith, someone who was going through significant uh, suffering, through a variety of issues. As we worked through different parts of the Bible, time and time again, every time we'd meet up, she would keep going from one part of the Bible back to Luke 15, from another part of the Bible back to Luke 15, She just wanted every week to read the story of the lost son and the searching grace of a loving father who says to the wayward son who's gone and squandered his father's money in wild living, who's come to his senses and come back throwing himself on the mercy of his father who wants to be reconciled and brought back into the family home and is welcomed with open arms. 
with the Father willing to, to, to count the cost, to bear the shame and to take the Son back in reconciling love and embrace. And this person kept going back there with a deep longing, knowing her own brokenness, her own broken family, her own failure as a parent, as a spouse with her own addictions and her own struggles to say what we all need to say that I need this I need this kind of reconciling embrace I need the affectionate kiss that says everything's okay all is forgiven I need to be reconciled to God and to other people. This picture of reconciliation is something that's repeated time and time again throughout the scriptures. And if you ever think in your life that reconciliation is easy or quick or cheap, or painless, the chances are the relationship you're thinking about is not that valuable or you're not doing it right. We're not talking about a moment but a lifetime. A lifetime that is shaped by being reconciled to God, our Heavenly Father, and reconciled to other people in real and meaningful ways, in costly and sacrificial forgiveness. And Jacob and Esau give us that wonderful picture of what this reconciliation can look like. Free from the fear of attack and violence and retribution, no sense of justice there's no sense of being repaid both of them express the fact that they don't need anything more that they've been provided with remember all the way back when this first started in the great tragedy of the bowl of lentil stew that both of them were fearful of what they would get how they'd be provided for and here they are decades later able to say that God is faithful, able to, to say that they have enough, that they don't need anything more. And therefore the focus is on their relationship. Jacob has no longer the grasper, but he's the one who's striving with God the God of relationship and reconciliation. And as he enters into the promised land, this is the event that begins his time back with his family of promise in the place of promise. And here is the purpose of being that family of promise, the ministry of reconciliation. Let's finish our time by thinking about the fact that Jacob 
is not only graciously limping, he's not only peacefully reconciled, but he is safely home. Pick it up with me at verse 16. So that day Esau started out on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth. He didn't want Esau to lead him into the promised land. God is leading him into the promised land. Jacob, however, went to Succoth where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That's the place, that's why the place is called Succoth Shelters. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. He's back in Canaan, the land of promise. But do you notice that he doesn't go to the place that he's meant to return to? That he doesn't go back to Bethel where he set up the altar, where God had met with him, where God had said, come back to here. Jacob's still a work in progress, he's still a piece of work. And his obedience is not yet perfect. Just as yours and mine will never be this side of the new creation. He's learning obedience through suffering. But it's not a straight line, is it? And it's not sinlessly perfect. Jacob doesn't listen to God and go back to Bethel. He lands at Shechem, which will be a devastating mistake, as we'll see next week. But for now, we recognise that he is safely back in the land of Canaan as the God of all faithfulness continues to keep his promises. When I was listening to that podcast the other day, I think I finished it just feeling sad. It was a story that had so much potential for reconciliation. These two Jewish men, I reckon, would have heard this story of Jacob and Esau. They would have known about reconciliation and the God of relationship being a God of gracious forgiveness. But in this podcast, this father and son, neither of them had a category of grace, the kindness that is extended undeservingly. They ne- neither of them had a category for forgiveness. And neither of them had the humility to own their own shame and disappointment and failure and walk across the rickety bridge of reconciliation that was built by this acquaintance. God, through suffering, prepares Jacob for reconciliation, showing him what grace is, what faith needs to look like, trusting in God. And through much pain and fear, through much heartache and confusion, through much learning how to trust and how to lean not on your own understanding, he prepares Jacob to be reconciled to his brother, even temporarily. And it provides for us a great encouragement to make reconciliation and relationship the golden thread of our Christian lives, just as it is through the narrative of the scriptures. And to recognise that we desperately long for and we desperately need and we're graciously provided with the reconciling work of the Lord Jesus who brings us back 
to God. Drives us back to Jesus, the one who doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped at and used to his own advantage, but rather he empties himself, takes the posture and the very nature of a servant, takes on our frail flesh and humbles himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That in the Lord Jesus, our Heavenly Father runs to us and throws his arms around us and plants the kiss of the Father's delight on our cheeks and welcomes us safely home, doing everything necessary, removing every stumbling block, dealing with every sin and all God's judgment, defeating death itself, that we might be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. And the wonder of that grace and that reconciliation will be clarified and amplified even through suffering. And I wonder if we might pray that having known the reconciling love of the Father through the grace of the Son, that we might then be those who keep building rickety bridges of reconciliation with other people, making God's appeal through us to a a desperate and lost and broken world be reconciled to God. And might we continue to learn that even in our weakness. Why don't we pray together? Our Father, we thank you for this picture of reconciliation and the example of Jacob and Esau, a story that's full of so much dysfunction and brokenness and sin and selfishness, but is a testimony to your faithfulness and grace. We thank you that in the Lord Jesus you run to us, that you embrace us with a reconciling and forgiving love, that you plant the kiss of your affection on our cheeks and welcome us home. Not because of anything inherently great about us or anything that we've achieved, but simply because of your love and the reconciling death and resurrection of your son. Help us, we pray, to not only be reconciled to you, but to others and to be agents for your reconciliation in this world. Do this, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.